0: Let's dive into improving our state of being. Today on the Minding Wellness Podcast, I am honored to bring back Jane Whitlock. Jane is a death doula and end of life educator, and we talked on episode 87. I so enjoyed that conversation that at the end of it, if you listened, I actually asked her to come back because I wanted to share her actual stories from... The front lines of death, basically. And so she graciously agreed to come back. And these are the amazing, inspiring, insightful stories that have come from her work. Just a small percentage of stories, but enough that it brought me to tears in the middle of this. So I highly encourage you to listen all the way if you can and really see the snippets and pearls of wisdom in each story. I think this is so valuable and I really hope that you enjoy. And just as a side note, while it may seem that I have pivoted my focus to the topic of death, it's more of an expansion to provide you a variety of topics to mind your wellness. So lots of other great content coming up, but I really think this episode is valuable. Enjoy. All right. I am so excited to bring back Jane Whitlock. I um, don't often ask people to come back a second and third time, but I immediately at the end of our episode the first time, which was episode 87, by the way, if you have not listened, I highly recommend you getting that background in Jane's story. But I really wanted to bring her back on to talk more about the tangible stories that come out of the amazing work that she does. So thanks so much for coming back, Jane. Oh, so happy to be here. Thanks for asking me again. Yeah, I love having this platform to share these stories, and I know that they will be so impactful to those who are listening. So for those who maybe didn't catch episode 87 yet, I, again, recommend that you do, but just a brief background. um, Jane is an end-of-life doula and an educator in that field and has some really great and amazing insights into the process of death, dying, and, um, you know... really a concept that a lot of us sort of maybe might find ourselves avoiding discussing, but I've really enjoyed her insights, her take on it. And so I asked her to come back to talk more about the stories, the actual stories that have come out of the work that she does. So I'm excited about this episode. So Jane, as we start, what I kind of wanted to start with was maybe more of a generalized concept of what, you know, some people listening might think, oh, this sounds like a really depressing episode, or I don't know if I'm ready for these stories. What is your sort of concept and philosophy around the more positive aspects of learning from those who are dying?
1: Um, That you bring up such a great point because people do, when they hear what I do for a living, they think oh my gosh that's so depressing or that's so sad but if you talk to anybody who deals who works with people around death and dying they will say that it is um it's transformative for us to be with someone in that space it makes me more grateful for simple everyday things that are already there and I have this passion about telling stories around death and dying because one of my first questions that I ask people who you know have a terminal illness and they're in hospice is what is your experience with dying? And more often than not they will say none, which if you think about it is almost pathological like how can you live to the age of 80 and have no experience with death? I think it's partly that they have You know, we we keep our distance from, we give people their private time when they're going through something like this. So maybe you visited like someone while they were sick, but actually being with someone at the moment of death or sitting vigil with them is not as common. I think um, it has to be like your spouse or a child or someone that immediate for you to have personal experience. So I have this passion about telling stories around end of life hopefully to prepare people so when they themselves are facing it, they have some bank of knowledge about how this happens, which I think will decrease your anxiety. And the people I know in hospice and death killers, we are not afraid of, uh, I mean, I am not afraid of dying. That might be, I allow that that might be different if I got a terminal diagnosis tomorrow. But the deaths that I have seen do not make me afraid hospice is is very good at controlling symptoms and keeping people comfortable you know in general of course there's you know cases where that is not true so um i can't even remember if i answered your questions but it is a passion of mine to share stories of how people can be transformed by facing death and it doesn't come all at once and comes in little pieces and i just feel so grateful to be allowed into those moments with people
0: I love that there 's a focus on gratitude and um, and the fact that you 're so open to the insights and i 'm sure each story probably brings a whole different set of insights, even though it 's a you know similar similar type of process. The details are different the person 's life is different, their stories, their families their people who are around them are different. so I actually find it extremely fascinating, although I will sort of validate the feelings of somebody listening who might think oh i 'm kind of intrigued, but i don 't know that I want to go down this path. I encourage you to listen to this episode in its entirety because i agree that that it is transformative i have not certainly been involved in as many um one-on-one sitting vigil type of situations as you for me it's really just been my family members but even in those situations that i have been there a transformative is absolutely the perfect word that I would I would use as well and, and gratitude for that experience. So let's go ahead and, and dive in. Um, and I guess, you know, let's just start with what stands out the most. So if you were to look back at the people that you've helped, and maybe you can give us a sense of what what maybe ballpark number that might be, which story sort of stands out and why?
1: Oh, yeah. A bunch of stories stand out for a bunch of different reasons. Um, and and I interact with people at end of life in two very distinct different ways. One is as an end of doula where they are my client and I have a longer term relationship with them. And that is um, a far smaller number than the people that I interact with as a hospice volunteer. Um, and that is, I work at a hospice that really the average stay is probably under a week. And I work every two, I volunteer every two weeks. So basically 99% of the people I see, I see them one time, but the interactions that I have with these people, it is. You know, people are so vulnerable and you just connect with them. I mean, I really, this might sound um, trite or uh, something, but I fall in love with people in in those interactions at hospice because you are with them when they have been stripped to the bone. In most cases, you have to allow yourself to be stripped down to your basic elements. Um, Some people can keep their denial and their... um, you know, keeping death at arm's length all the way up until the moment they die. And those people I I do not connect with as deeply. Um, So one story, the first person that I realized that had this really deep transformation at death was Rob, my husband. And I didn't realize it at the time. I think because I was in shock and um, that whole time is sort of a haze. But when I looked at photos of him afterwards, he did um, a treatment at Sloan Kettering. So I have a picture of him standing against a fence of that reservoir in Central Park. And he is looking skyward and he has this smile on his face that I never saw. He was a Virgo to the, 10th nth degree and he was a big worrier that's what he said was one of his greatest regrets of his life is that he worried so much but in that picture at central park he was not worried he he had let go of all that for the last maybe month of his life and he really was transformed and it was shocking for me to see that um and that was not the last time i would see someone transformed and i can't tell you necessarily what is the difference between people who make um, these great strides at end of life and people that don't. Um, Another one was a family friend who was, um, he was, father so he was much older than I was and he in his regular life had been a big businessman and very he was an imposing figure, physical figure he was big and he was very strong in his opinions and I really didn't have much of a relationship with him other than the kind of relationship you have with your friend's dad's. Um, and I went to see him when he was dying, and I walked into the room, and he had a huge smile on his face, and he said, oh, I know you, and he reached out and grabbed my hand and pulled me to him, and he held my hand for over 15 minutes, and he sang a whole entire song, and I didn't even know that he was a singer. I had no idea, Um, and he was just he was just radiating love. And uh, that was a profound experience. And when I got up to leave, he blew me a kiss. And these are just things that never in a million years would I have imagined that would happen for him. And he had a large extended family, kids, grandkids, and people were crying. And he, and he was like, don't cry for me. Don't cry for me. And he just he was just radiating love. That's the only way that that I can really describe it.
0: Hmm. Um, I, those are such beautiful stories, and I love that you shared your husband um, first and foremost. And um, you know, as you're as you're mentioning these stories, I'm thinking, you know, do you see this as people? And you did kind of use the word "stripping to the bone" as people sort of releasing the attachment to titles and roles and masks, and and this really, you're seeing them as they truly are near the end. Right, and I think part of it is just accepting
1: that you are dying and not being caught up in the, the anger about having your life cut short or the, um, you know, I, I have another client who had had a terminal illness, pancreatic cancer, which is a very quick killer. I mean, she had it like two, three years, so she was kind of an outlier already, and she was really, really bitter. She was bitter that her husband was gonna get to live um, without her, she was bitter at her children who were estranged from her, and there was just so much anger. And and I kept, um, you, you know, trying to work with her, but really she just wanted to stay there. That's what that's what she wanted. So I said, you know, um, you can contact me when you, when you want to get in touch with me. Otherwise, you know, I'm just here. And uh, she she wrote me a couple weeks later, and she said I had a dream. And I said, what was the dream? And she said, well, I was getting smaller, but at the same time, more universal. And I said, how did that feel? And she said, it felt really good. It felt like it was taking all the pressure off of me and that I am this other entity that I wasn't aware of before. And I thought, wow, that is That is profound. There's, I think I shared on the last podcast, that phrase that death comes not for you, but for someone who he makes ready. And people do have dreams toward the end of life that help them to recognize that they're not only their physical self or that there's something else. And I know there's You know, I don't know what happens after we die. Nobody does. Um, But people do have these dreams that become a comfort to them.
0: Mm -hmm. I so love that. I love all the stories so far. Um, I definitely love the concept of acceptance. I think this concept of just extreme acceptance of what is and not fighting against it is um, really very powerful. And the the dreams, um, you know, and her specific dream of getting smaller and more universal, that's really pretty powerful too. Um, And I, I do wonder, you know, how many people that you're noticing sort of stay bitter or in denial or angry or, or fighting against what is till the end versus getting to the point of acceptance? Would you say the scale tips towards the latter or kind of half-half, just from what you've seen, how many sort of make that transformation?
1: I And this is totally anecdotal, but I would say a third of them maybe less than a third, maybe a quarter come to full acceptance where they, they, I, I would say it's like, they find their place in the wheel of the universe. And it's like, this is, this is, I'm not supposed to last forever. Like I, I am, this is what's supposed to happen to me. Um, I would say a quarter of them. And those people really do radiate love, peace, acceptance, these really beautiful kind of universal virtues. Um, and then Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I'll tell you some stories of some other people who were, who were being transformed bit by bit. There was this one man that I just, um, the hospice staff that, um, I work at know what I do as an end of life doula. So now when I come on this shift, they'll say, oh, can you go to this room? And this, this person's really struggling with X, Y, Z. So they said, this man is really, really angry. And maybe you shouldn't even go in to see him. So I went in and he was very OCD. So they said, don't touch anything in his room. I said, okay. So I went in and this man was like 55 and, you know, skinny as a rail and sitting up. There's, I just couldn't fathom how he had the strength to sit up. Um, And he had this long stringy hair that was hanging in front of his face. And uh, he was working on filling out his meal card for his lunch. And he was hitting his head and saying, come on, come on, you can do this. You can do this. And, um, I I always say, you know, hi, I'm a volunteer. Are you up for a visit? And he slowly lifted up his head, looked dead at me with these big blue eyes and said, what would that entail? And I was like, I love this guy already. (laughs) Um, And so I sat down with him and he was working so hard at filling out this menu card, but it's hard because he's on all kinds of huge painkillers and he's exhausted. Um, So we kind of joked about, you know, he finally filled it out. And I knew better than to offer to help him because people, especially men, really like their independence they do not want to be dependent on someone else so i waited and then um, the man from the hospice the lunch guy didn't come in to pick up the his menu so we were joking about that i'm like wait this guy's gonna ride you so hard about getting your menu done and and then now he doesn't even come so then we were laughing and we developed this rapport and then his lunch came and um he and i this has happened before where you i was watching he was eating a bite of fish and he squirted it on so much mayonnaise like a tablespoon of mayonnaise on this tiny bite of fish and he put it into his mouth and he started chewing and i recognized it immediately like he can no longer eat food you know his mouth does not create enough saliva to swallow and um he, it's just rolling around in there. And I know it because that happened to Rob too. And he looked at me and he said, this is disgusting. I don't know what to do with it. I said, spit it out. So that's what I said to this guy. And he spit it out. And um, there was just a moment of silence. And I really like to leave those moments of silence because that is where people are doing their work. And if you jump in there and talk, the moment is lost. So we just sat with that because that's profound, right? He can no longer swallow. So now he's that much closer to death. And after a while, I said, you know, you could, we could order a smoothie or just fresh fruit. And he looked at me again and said, is that supposed to make me feel better? I thought, oh, no, it isn't, right? You're, You're closer to death and no one can change that. So we, you know, he was falling asleep and he said, I... I said, I'll go visit other people. And he's like, no, 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 stay, stay. And I said, no, I'll visit other people and then I'll come back. So that's what I did. And I came back and he said, I was thinking, I don't know when you work next, but I have a feeling this is the last time I'm going to see you. And I have a pact with myself to always be totally honest with people. And I said, I think you're right. And then he crossed himself and he knocked on the table and he dropped his head. And uh, I didn't say anything. We sat there in silence for a couple of minutes and then he said, I'm so pissed. And then I waited and I said, is it okay that you're pissed or do you wish you weren't pissed? And then he thought for another full minute and he said, I wish I wasn't pissed. And then I made a terrible mistake, which this is how I learned how to do my job. I I said, I understand I'm sorry that you're pissed but I understand why you are and then again he looked at me with those steely blue eyes and said you understand nothing Mm -hmm. and then he motioned for me to like leave the room and I was like oh this is a dagger to my heart so I got up and I left and the hospice staff was like you know celebrating me they're like oh my gosh you got him to laugh you stayed in there for an hour and a half like oh my gosh that's amazing and I was like no 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 um, so it was the end of my shift, and I was getting ready to leave. And I thought, I can't, I have to go back there because I'm going to live with this. Mm-hmm. So I went back and I knocked on his door, and I was like, Hey, and he looked up and I said, I am really sorry. And he nodded and then he motioned for me to leave again. Um, and that's what happens. You know, he was processing the fact that he is dying. And to be in that space with people, you just, you can never assume that you know what they're feeling. You know, it makes me feel better to say, oh, I'm sorry, but I understand why you're feeling that, but it's not what is being called for. So I have many moments like that where people are getting closer to their own end and they're going through all these. Um, You know, like, how will I be remembered? Um, What about my family? I had another man who was um, 50, young guy, had two teenage sons, and he was pretty bitter about a lot of stuff. He said, I'm really resentful. And I said, tell me more about that. And he said, like, you, you can get up and walk out of this room. I can't do that. Uh, That makes me so angry. And uh, so I just nod. And then I said, what else? And he said, my, my kids. You know, I have a million projects around my house that are unfinished and no one is going to know how to finish them. And my I have been begging my kids to learn how to fix stuff. And they always wanted to go play basketball or be with their friends. And now they didn't learn it. And who's going to help their mother? And uh, and he said, and they came to me yesterday and they were so sad about that. And what can I say besides, yep, you made a big mistake. And so I just let that sit there for a while, right? Because that is anguish for me, um, That those boys. Because I know those boys are going to live with their fathers saying, yep, you made a big mistake. So after a, a good amount of silence, I said, you know, my son died, and my husband died when my son was 13, and lots of dads and 13-year-olds do not get along very well. But what I say to my son is, you know what? You didn't get a chance to grow through that. You and your dad got robbed of the opportunity to make it to 20, you know, when you get along again, and that's, that's sad for both of you. And I said, so maybe, you know, your kids aren't going to be interested in fixing stuff until they get their own house. You know, so maybe you set something up with your buddies who know how to fix stuff and you say, hey, I'm going to give you my tools and, what, and I'm going to tell my kid that they can call you to learn how to fix stuff. And when they call you, I want you to go over to their house with my tools, teach them, uh, teach them how to fix their house and then give them my tools. And he was like, you have given me a lot to think about, you know? So then I leave and he's, he's in there thinking about what kind of a legacy he can leave for his kids that isn't laced with bitterness and regret.
0: Mm. Okay. I've been in full chills pretty much this whole episode so far. Um, Mm -hmm. Just so much, so much to unpack in each story. I, I love, I love that that last story you were able to connect with him because of your own experience and, and it, it, it was such in contrast to the one right before that, which is like you can't possibly understand, whereas in this situation, you did have a level of understanding from just a, a life standpoint that really made a huge impact on him and his family. Um, what I What I kind of want to maybe dive into just a little bit before maybe you share the next story is going back to the the you know the hospital example the angrier man who who you mentioned that you understand and he wasn't too happy with that i think that we do get ourselves into situations even with our friends when we don't know what to say and we say the wrong things and we there's no manual book for this like there isn't for parenting and so we often you know say something that we think is going to be helpful but like you mentioned maybe feels like it helps us more than them what are some of the learnings, I guess, that came out of that, um, that are sort of on the same parallel lines of things that we often say, whether it's to the dying or to the grieving family members or friends of the dying, that we could tweak, maybe say it in a different way, or maybe is your advice to say less and just listen more?
1: Yeah, I think, um, have you seen that Brene Brown little video of what to do with a friend who's grieving? Yes. Yes. Oh, I love that. And you crawl down into the hole with them. Mm-hmm. So I think that saying less is always better and saying, I'm here for you. in in any scenario, I'm here for you, or I I am listening to you um, is always helpful. You know, after Rob died, plenty of people told my 12 year old son, you know, take care of your mom. I'm like that this kid just lost his dad. Now he's supposed to take care of his mom. What a ridiculous thing to say. Um, so I, I do, you know, people do ask me like, oh, I'm going to a funeral. What what do I say? And I just say, you know, if they're open to a hug, hold them. You know, if they're that close of a person to you, be a good hugger. And people who are grieving, I feel like have special radar for who is a good hugger and you want to be held. You want to be held. Um, And, 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 and just have someone say, I'm here for you. That's it. It's, it's, and, and also tell me more. Can you tell me about what you're feeling? Can you tell me about, you know, how this experience is for you? I just want to listen. I have no idea what you're feeling. Tell me. Um, Yeah. All the platitudes, all the things that, you know, basically the, the bottom line should be after you say it, if you feel better yourself, it was probably the wrong thing to say. And if you if you feel like, oh, don't know if I, you feel vulnerable and uncomfortable, it was probably an okay thing to say.
0: Mm, what a good lesson! I think that that's holds so much truth, and because yeah. um, I, I do think that that is so true that we often are just saying and not intentionally to hurt the other person. We just don't know any better, and then uh, we might feel better, but they they definitely don't. And then oftentimes we don't realize and even what we've done until we go through it ourselves. And then we think, Oh, did I, did I say that? Was I that person that said that in the past? So, yeah, yeah. I really, uh, so coming back to, you know, it really is really interesting to me that out of your anecdotal experience, you know, you're estimating about a th- you know quarter to a third come to full acceptance. I don't even honestly know what I would have assumed would have been the number, but, um, but it makes me, somewhat sad for the other percentage that isn't coming to full acceptance. What would you say is your understanding of sort of life events, um, personality types? What, What leads, and I know you mentioned it's hard to say and we don't really know, but what have you kind of noticed as maybe patterns in those who have come to full acceptance versus not? Is it, does it, is there an interplay with the family who's also in denial? Like, what are some of your insights into that?
1: Yeah. Um I would say the more gratitude the person has, the easier they are, the easier it is for them to accept that they're dying. Um If you, you know, the, if you have this sense of entitlement about like, you know, I get to live this long or, um, I I'm I can expect that these things are going to happen in my life, then you do feel robbed. But if you're just grateful for, I think if you just live a life of gratitude, there was this one man who had been born in China and had just, he lived during the time of Mao. I mean, he lived through starvation. He lived through, oh my gosh. And then he emigrated here and had to start all over. I mean, he had he had reason to be bitter and he just, radiated love and joy in the moment. And every volunteer fell in love with him. And everybody who left that room had a smile on their face, because he was just totally in the moment. Um, I think people always say that you die the way that you lived. And I definitely see that where, um, you know, people don't change at all. And, and maybe families have hard times talking about what's happening. So that door for transformation never really gets opened because everybody's still afraid to talk about it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, You know, I, that is a great question. And I don't know, I don't know that I know the answer to it. I really hope that I, my work in my everyday practices of being grateful and trying to be, you know, accepting and forgiving, Will carry me to my deathbed. That that will have an effect on the way that I die. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I um I really love having these conversations because you know I love that quote by Ram Dass that says you know we're all just walking each other home and I feel like you know at, at some point I start to you know I've started to realize that maybe this second part of life or you know this this transformation of my own life is like in preparation for acceptance of what is and that includes you know, sort of the, the finality of, of the physical finality of death. And um, so, yeah, that I feel like, you know, it, it's gotta be a large percentage of not all of our goal to get to a point where we will be in a good place at that time, yet we don't really spend the time to work on that. <laughs> you know, we just kind of hope for the best. Um, but I think having these conversations and making it a topic of conversation, it can only be more helpful. What are some of the, um, maybe patterns or consistencies and stories that you have noticed in those that are dying. For instance, um, I noticed in my family members that there was a consistent pattern of speaking of sort of seeing or feeling the presence of those who had passed before them. Um, You know, and that's not in my, like for instance, with my dad, that wasn't something that he would have spoken about before. So it wasn't like he was in tune with that his whole life, but suddenly it was, you know, that that was for top of mind in the last couple of weeks. Are there, are there certain sort of commonalities amongst stories near the end?
1: Definitely. There are things that are, yes, common, not, not across every single person, but yeah, the hospice nurses refer to the ceiling above the bed as the portal because it's so common for people to look up there and to see things that we can't see. And in I always tell family members, say, tell me what you see. You know, can I come with, where are we going? Mm-hmm. Ask them questions because it's so common that people feel like they're going on a journey. They need to pack, they need to catch a plane. They need to get to a gate. They're getting to the bus station. Uh, this travel metaphor is very common. And Sometimes families make the mistake to say, like, no, we're right here. We're, you know, safe at the hospice. But it's so much better to say, tell me where we're going. What does it look like? Um, I read this story about one man who is like, we're going – Oh, we have to go over that hill. See, he saw this great green rolling hill. He said, we're going to the house, the top of the hill. And, And his son said, can I come with you? And he said, yeah, let's go, let's go. And so they got to the top of the hill. And then the man looked at his son and said, you can't come any further. I have to go in alone. Um, And there's stories like that. There's some people who seem to be able to straddle both worlds, like one foot here and one foot wherever they're going, and they can talk about it. And then others who seem to be experiencing it and are unable to explain what they see. Um, But also there's some people, like there was a woman at hospice who her son had died when he was five, and she um, was talking to him. And her daughter said, who are you talking to? And she said, I'm talking to Tito. He's been here for two weeks, you know? Mm-hmm. And then maybe her sense of time is off too, but definitely they are having experiences that are out of our, our realm and our ability to understand. And, you know, one, um, one man, he was in the second floor and he looked out the window and he said, oh, mom and dad are doing house, they're doing raking the leaves. Like they've been out there all day, you know, it's just super common. They are not worried by it. I mean, I have had clients who have been worried by what they see. They do not like what they see. Um, And I have not been able to to get them to explain what, what it is, but it is very, it's very unsettling for family members to be with their loved one and their loved one is scared. And, you know, in that case, hospice can give meds and maybe the fear is a reaction to meds, um, but they can give meds to sort of settle the person down so they're not so anxious. Um, but I also think a big piece of your ability to accept death at the end is having some sense of agency about it. Um, Joan Halifax, the the Buddhist um, monk, says that you should think about the death that you want and and then you should think about what are you willing to give up to get that death? And I, I think, especially in this time of COVID, if you are an older per you're 80, my parents and you're living in a senior living facility that has medical care you should think long and hard about if you get COVID, would you rather go to the hospital, be separated from everyone you know and love and be put on a ventilator? That is a really uncomfortable experience and have an 80% chance of it not working. And if it does work, have a lifelong trouble of lung lung problems in front of you, or would you rather just stay in place, get comfort meds, get, you know, um, I'm going to say methadone, morphine, um, and stay with your loved ones and get, you know, skip the ambulance ride. So I have seen people who there's this one man, so V said is voluntarily stopping eating and drinking, and it is gaining in popularity. And I had one family friend who he, he had terrible gout. He couldn't get around on his own. He had to, you know, depend on people to help him get to the bathroom or get anywhere And he just decided this quality of life is not worth it. And he told his family, he said, I'm going to stop taking all my meds. I'm going to stop eating and drinking. And everybody flew in from all over the world. And he died in eight days. And he only had one dose of morphine. So it was not painful. And he was very lucid. And right before he died, he opened his eyes. And he looked all around the room at everybody and nodded and died. Um, there was another man who had, um, kidney cancer for 10 years. So he had been fighting an illness for a very, very long time. And he refused to talk about death or dying or making any kind of plan. He had two kids. I really, his family wanted me to sort of get some sense of what he wanted. And I was poking him and prodding him and he stopped and he said, James, I'm at the bottom of a volcano spewing hot lava. It's pouring down toward me. There's a narrow road with a car on it. I have sat there and watched 50 other people get in that car and gun it, trying to get over this gully to the other side. Every single one of them died in the bottom of the gully in a ball of flames. You can bet your life I'm going to get in that car every single time, which was I'm going to ride treatment right up until the bitter end. Mm-hmm. um and i said okay so good to know and that is in fact exactly what he did he was on tylenol as a painkiller up until the day he died mm-hmm. it, the man had an incredible force of will but um he was having trouble breathing and a palliative care doc convinced him to do a microdose of morphine he did and he felt so much better he could breathe so much better he said i want more And she said, you can't do that because you are a full code. So if this morphine stops your heart, we have to do everything in our power to keep you back alive. And your body, you know, couldn't, that would be very traumatic. And he said, okay, I'll, I'll be a do not resuscitate. Just give me more morphine. So they gave him the second dose of morphine. And the very first thing he said was, I know I'm dying call in my family call in my kids get everybody to the hospital and then it was so beautiful even though he had never told anyone and never entertained the thought of death he told his whole family exactly what he wanted he called everybody in one by one told them what he was grateful for what they do well what he wanted them to continue doing what he wanted his siblings to do for his children he had everybody assembled. He said, "Now we're going to be quiet and listen to my music." And he turned on his playlist, surrounded by his family and candlelight, and they played all his favorite music and after 2 hours he said, "Okay, no more music, no talking. I want you all in here quietly and I want you to come up to my bed and lightly put your hands on my on me, on, you know, on my covers." And they sat like that for 2 hours and he died. It was beautiful and they felt this great sense of closure, but So he had an agency around it, even though he didn't hire a death doula and he didn't make a plan and he didn't do all this stuff. He thought about it and he thought about what he wanted.
0: Mm. So many chills, um, even some tears in the middle of all that. Um, Just really, really good. I love the Joan Halifax uh, reference, you know, to think about death, uh, the death that you want and what you're willing to give up. I think that that is such a powerful thought that goes right into the examples that you've given are um, just so much so much beauty in the midst of the dying process that I think we will miss out on if we don't open up to you know and the uh, not everybody's going to be you know a volunteer or a death doula but I think that opening ourselves up to even the circumstances and opportunities that we have in our own life whether it's family or friends um can can give us some of these insights that you so eloquently laid out here what would you say what comes to mind is I wonder what you think your shift in perspective has been or the, the person you would be differently if you did not have these experiences. What do you, what do you kind of put as the value of these and can you even imagine who you would have been without them?
1: Uh, well, I can imagine who would I have been without them? Cause it has not been very long. I've only been a death duel. I mean, Rob died in 2013. So um I mean, I used to, I always say I used to be normal. I used to just, you know, make plans and assume I'm going to be there to do them. And I had this sense of entitlement about my life and what I was, what my life was going to look like. Um, And now I don't. And I have a sense of gratitude for, you know, being able to eat a crunchy, delicious egg roll. One day I will not be able to do that. Like I have gratitude for being able to hug my children one day. I will not be able to move my arms. Um, talking, going outside. I mean, really, the the Buddhists start every day with, I'm of the nature to grow old. I'm of the nature to suffer. And I'm of the nature to die. So you are just reminding yourself in a very concrete daily practice that that is your nature. Your nature is not to live forever and to, you know, I hate the super... Positive aging thing about like yeah you're gonna stay physically fit forever because we stop the discussion at the decline mm-hmm. nobody wants to hear about the decline um, but that that is our nature so I I, le- I would like to think that I am more grateful and that I am more kind and that I am not ever gonna have a road rage I see people with road rage and I think oh good grief life is so short wherever you think you gotta go eat, it's not true. It's like you're playing games in your head. You know, I like to think that I'm not the person who's on the phone with while I'm buying my groceries, not interacting with the checker, you know, just be aware of other people, be, be kind. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I I completely agree. As I've been on my own spiritual journey, those are the the road rage is one of the the biggest things that I think stand out to me because it seems like such a, a waste of of energy you know in time and and the moments passed and we're still clinging on to it and getting upset about it and um you know these daily these daily Moments in our life that can be our our gurus, you know, without having to have an actual guru. They're they that they're the lessons, they're the spiritual assignments and the lessons, and that can uh, be used in that way. So I I just so appreciate all the work that you do, Jane, and these stories that, stories that you've shared. Um, I'm going to be re-listening to this episode quite often because I think that these are important reminders, for, especially for those of us who are not, you know, in, are are not given the opportunity as often as you are to experience them, just to hear these stories and remind ourselves of what the transformation is and how transformative it can be. And, um, you know, I really, I think that you embody the, the quote that we're all walking each other home. You're doing that literally in your daily life. And I, I so appreciate the work that you do and your willingness to share these insights on a second episode. So thank you so much for coming on again.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. And I'm just, I am super grateful that I get to do this with people.
0: Thank you so much, Jane. Just wow. The insights from this episode will be ongoing for me. I will surely listen to this again and continue to dive into the details of these stories I hope that you found this just as valuable as I did, if not more, everybody's in a different part of their journey with the acceptance of the reality and finality of death. And my hope is to bring this topic to a point where we can freely talk about it without taboo, without stigma, and with a purpose of helping walk each other home, which Jane is doing in her life now. So thank you all for continuing to listen and sticking with me as we continue to mind our wellness. We will certainly bring the topic of death back in. It might be a while, but I have lots of great content coming and I look forward to seeing you here again next time.